Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I am so happy that we have listeners from all around the world, and I've had a chance to meet some via Zoom and Skype and phone who've wanted to connect and tell me about what their interest was in the show. And I also have a feature. If you become a Patreon supporter and go to patreon.com slash indoctrination, for $50 a month, you can have a monthly meeting with me on the phone or Skype or Zoom to ask the questions that you have in regard to these issues and have kind of a, a, a personalized chat. So go ahead and become a supporter for $50 or more per month. And then we can talk once a month. I also want to thank my listeners all over the world, in the United States and Canada and everywhere. And also this week, all the listeners that we had in Finland, Denmark, Ireland, and Australia. It is truly gratifying and really interesting to find out where people are listening all over the world. And also, some of you uh, noticed a mug that I have been using for my coffee and tea. Uh, It has the word love on it, and it has a red hibiscus flower with green leaves. Hibiscus is one of my favorites. And uh, you've been asking me uh, where I got it. So here is a plug for where I got it. It's from a shop online called musingthoughts.shop. And you can go there. They have interesting things. <laughs> they have those mugs. And they have that same logo on different items. And there are new products coming. I think it's a new shop. So check it out. There are t-shirts and stickers and things for musicians and um, funny sayings. And uh, they have new products coming up for Mother's Day, etc., etc. Anyway, happy to plug a store that I have benefited from and uh, enjoy, enjoy musingthoughts.shop. And for today, we have a special guest, someone we haven't spoken to before, someone who is wise, has a gentle soul. You'll see what I mean when you hear him speak. His name is Brian Rush McDonald, and he grew up in southern Alabama in the early 1970s, where he eventually gave up his dream of working as a professional musician to become what at the time was called a Jesus freak. During his high school years, however, he unwittingly found himself involved in fundamentalist Christianity. He was then ordained and began a life in the ministry, eventually having three children with his high school sweetheart. He was a pastor for many years, all the while quietly wrestling with the harsh dogma of his chosen religion. He pursued graduate studies at the College of William and Mary, eventually earning a PhD and gaining a deeper understanding of human development, particularly with regard to religious belief. Finally, after 30 years of preaching, MacDonald walked away from the pulpit to pursue a different path. His recent book, The Long Surrender is a riveting memoir about losing religion to find freedom. You can find out more about Dr. McDonald and purchase his book at brianrushmcdonald.com. Here he is now. One of the things I really like about doing this work is that I get to meet new people. And I am so happy to meet Brian McDonald today and to have a chance to speak with you about your experiences, what you learned along the way that now you've turned into, I'm sure, a lot of the ways that you live your life, raise your kids and help with your grandkids, but also with the work that you do specifically. It's very nice to meet you. And uh, if you don't mind taking a few moments to introduce yourself to the listeners, that would be great. Well, I'm in Alexandria, Virginia, which is right outside of uh, Washington, D.C., right across the Potomac River. Uh, I'm originally from the Deep South. I'm uh, 
that little part of Alabama that hangs down between Mississippi and Florida on the Gulf Coast. That's where I'm from originally. You know, I'm married. I, in fact, I'm, my wife is the girl that I met in high school. We've been married 45 years. I have three kids and three grandkids. And um, just like a one paragraph about my book, and then we can go back and see what you want to talk about about it. My son, especially my oldest son, kept encouraging me to write. And for years, I kept a kind of a journal of trying to write all the things that happened. And I was trying to just, you know, discover for myself why I ended up as a fundamentalist preacher and missionary and then became so unhappy with it. So anyway, I worked for about three years on the book and it was published last year. And it's called The Long Surrender. And uh, the title is because often in evangelical churches, they sing a song at the end of the service, I Surrender All. And then in my case, I surrendered all, but then it became a journey of trying to surrender to my voice within me rather than what I had surrendered to. So eventually surrendering to that. And uh, so um, it covers the book covers kind of from when I was age about 17, when I got involved in like religious life at a public school campus and then up to where I was almost 50 when I eventually left the ministry about 18 years ago now. And so. One of the other things that was probably uh, seminal was that I started high school in 1970, and during the four years that I was in high school, it was a lot of changes, you might say upheaval. Uh, for one thing, um, when I started in high school in 1970, believe it or not, girls had to wear skirts to school, and boys had to have their hair you know, cut above the ears and that type of thing. And by the t- just within a couple of years, it was boys hair was down on their shoulders the girls were wearing hot pants and altar tops and every you know there was just a, there was the hippie culture that was really influencing things the other thing was though that it was when i was my second year of high school that the busing took place to try to achieve racial desegregation so i was sent to a different school <laughs> and the first year was rough i mean uh, it was a lot of fighting and the riot police came once and all that and it was the first time that I had been around black people in any numbers seeing it. And then we had like 40% of a school of 3,000. So I think there was just a lot of things that were happening that were different. And uh, for some reason, about my third year of high school, I kind of gravitated toward like the students that would bring their Bible to school. Sometimes they were called Jesus freaks, which meant they kind of looked like hippies, but they brought their Bibles to school and that kind of thing. I never really liked the hippie look. I guess my mother always made me dress neatly. So it was a little hard for me to be that look. But I tried that for a while. But at any rate, I got I would bring my Bible every day and I got to be known as the guy that every conversation somehow I would turn it to talk about Jesus and so forth. And so at that point, I began to kind of think that maybe to want to aspire to be a musician would uh, bring too much, as they say in evangelicalism, glory to me and not glory to God. And so I began to kind of push that aside. I never put it, put it aside completely. I always played. But I began to think that, I, you know, all I want to do is tell people about Jesus. And I had gone to Sunday school as a child. But uh, when I began to read the Bible, it really bothered me, this concept of people burning in hell forever. And uh, it looked like that was going to be almost everybody. <laughs> Not many people were, were signing up for the way that, that I had, right? <laughs> And uh, that bothered me so much that, I mean, it was almost, uh, I, I was ill thinking about that. I know now that part of that, the reason I had a hard time coping, because I do have an anxiety disorder, probably OCD, and I just couldn't quit thinking about it. But in some way, anxiety was my friend in the law over the, law, over the years, because it caused me to examine things that that did bother me and that I couldn't handle. But I met this girl, and I, I can say that because that's my wife now. And um, I started going with her church. Her church had a very dynamic youth minister. But what I didn't know, I couldn't have known because I didn't know much about it, was while it was a Baptist church, it was a fundamentalist Baptist church. It was different than the other ones in town. Believe it or not, a lot of people think Southern Baptists uh, are so conservative and all that. Back then, they probably weren't. But this church thought the Southern Baptists were liberal. So I'll give you an idea what this church was like. I'm really grateful, actually, that you're getting into the terminology for a moment here, because I think a lot of people will talk about what they were involved with, but people don't necessarily have a frame of reference to understand what that means and how it's distinguished then from um, from other things. So, yeah, if you can talk a little bit about what that means to be fundamentalist Baptist and how that's different. At that time, I mean, some of these things have continued to evolve, but it meant that they really emphasized that 
the Bible is inspired and without error. And uh, so none of the things in the Bible can you can't explain them away and say, well, that's just an allegory or a myth like, you know, the Noah's Ark or the, the creation of uh, the earth in six days. Not all of this is factual and historically and scientifically accurate. That's one part. And of course, evangelical is a bigger umbrella and fundamentalist is sort of under that. Evangelical means, it seems, as I understand it, what I just said, usually a belief in the inerrancy of the Bible, but also belief in a personal conversion experience as opposed to have been baptized as a baby. And then a lot of emphasis on a personal life of knowing God and knowing Jesus as opposed to churches that are more ritualistic and liturgical and that kind of thing. So fundamentalists, though, take it a step further from evangelicals, and they say that we don't want to associate with some of these people that might be liberal, they might deny some of the things in the Bible. They might say they're Christians, but they, you know, they accept some views of the Bible that are considered not totally orthodox. Fundamentalists become quite insular. We, we're the ones right. We're the true, <laughs> the true church. And so you find yourself more and more separated, not only from people that aren't even Christians at all, but from other people who would claim to be Christian. That's what fundamentalism was about. I really like that you're making this bridge, though, from you being tremendously affected and bothered by this idea of people burning in hell. And then you're going to this fundamentalist Baptist church. I mean, I'm seeing how it all kind of led one thing led into the next. Yes. And the odd thing is when I would talk to people about this, everybody going to hell. I mean, some people haven't even heard about this. I mean, would that, you know, and the answer I would get, whether it was from another teenager or from a minister was, yes, um, it's a terrible thing. You know, that's the reason we need to go out and tell people about Jesus. But I couldn't see how we were making enough headway for that. (laughs) It was like trying to empty the ocean with a teaspoon. Like, And of course, when you bring up the issue that, well, some people haven't even heard about just Jesus business, the one of the answers you would get from ministers was a verse in the Bible that says, well, the heavens show the handiwork of God and so that people don't have an excuse for not believing. So when the, my minister told me that, I said, so are you saying that they could be saved by just noticing that the earth is a beautiful place and the heavens are? He said, well, not exactly. And then he, he kind of got but that shows, again, the, you know, the concept of hell is, is sort of intellectually indefensible, but yet it's, it's a tenet of Christianity. The one thing that is interesting, because all people say that it's so essential that heaven and hell, and yet from my understanding that Jewish teaching does not have a concept of either heaven or hell. Right. It doesn't. There's been some talk about it over the years, and there is this idea of the high holidays that you kind of your your soul is weighed and measured basically you have to kind of figure out what kind of person you're going to be and how to make amends for things you've done in the past because sort of god is watching if that's part of your tradition or your denomination within judaism but you got to correct stuff now and here and now because there isn't a later you're not going to do things so that you're rewarded later you're going to do things let's say the right way because you want the world to be a good place now it's much more immediate that's positive and negative I think psychologically speaking, not religiously speaking, uh, because I think there are a lot of people who need an external locus of control to know that there's going to be a punishment if they don't do X, right? And for some people that comes in handy in, in a lot of different traditions. And there are other people who need to know that the life that they're suffering through now, that somehow there's going to be a payoff for it later on, because otherwise it's just too dismal to think about. I can imagine and I I can assume psychologically why these concepts really uh, hold power. Um, but it, no, it's not part of Jewish tradition. And the interesting thing is that one of the things about evangelical Christianity that believes that, you know, that the earth is going to be destroyed and these type of things in the future is that there's not as much interest in making life better here. It's like, well, it's all going to be destroyed anyway, and you're going to be with God in heaven. And so, you know, there's even a song that we used to sing, this earth is not my home, I'm just passing through, right? So there's that idea that it doesn't matter if you make it better or if it's terrible. So I started thinking, all I want to do is, you know, tell people about Jesus. And so my parents were not really particularly well-educated. 
my father had gone to college maybe a, a, a year back in the depression. My mother had not. So they didn't know how to guide me. So this youth director that I really looked up to that I thought he was very dynamic, he had gone to this one college that I'd never heard of, but I'd never heard of most colleges other than the universities in my state. And so I decided I should go there. And it was called Bob Jones University. I went there in fall of 1974. Actually, I had visited there once during my senior year of high school, and I was not favorably impressed. It seemed cold and it seemed rigid. And to give you an idea what it was like, my girlfriend, she was not allowed to go into the chapel service because she had pants on. And so that was giving out, but it was just so cold. But I went and I, people have asked me and I've asked myself, like, why did you go or why didn't you leave after you got there? I think part of it was a teaching that kind of comes out in, in uh, fun, even evangelicals that God may want you to do something that you don't want to do. And God also may want you to give up something that you love. In my case, that was the music. And so you'd hear so many people say, I could have been this, but I gave it up for God. I could have been that, but I gave it up for God. So I went there. And so at first I was very unhappy, especially the first semester, because it was rigid and we had to go to chapel four days a week. And there were the, it's named Bob Jones University. And there were two Bob Joneses at that time. The, the founder was dead, but the, his son, Bob Jones Jr. and Bob Jones III. And they pretty much took turns preaching every day in the chapel and we had to go you know it was pretty much preaching against current trends and often preaching against other religious groups that they thought were not towing the line one of them said something one day in chapel that could be construed to be i would say racist and uh, i was very upset about it because i mean i had grown up with racism but in high school i thought that i had made real progress in in accepting and w- going to school alongside blacks and being in the band alongside blacks. And I thought, I thought racism was wrong, that God loved everyone the same. So when this man who was our leader said this, I was aghast and I went back to the dormitory and uh, my roommates were a little alarmed, not that they didn't agree with me, but that I was going to get myself in big trouble because you didn't criticize what was said in chapel. You didn't criticize the powers that be. And they kept saying, Brian, you can't fight City Hall. Please don't just drop it. I did end up writing a letter to the president of the university, but it was sort of blown off as like nobody was concerned about it but me, which wasn't true. At that time, Bob Jones University didn't allow blacks to attend. Now, at that time, it, I mean, colleges were just starting to have blacks attend, right? I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know when it started. So, but they, it wasn't just because blacks didn't want to; they refused. And their th- their teaching was that, well, we don't allow this because. The Bible teaches that the races should not intermarry. And so we we don't want to have black people here because that might result in students marrying across race. The interesting thing was none of us, including my friends, were ever able to find any of the religion faculty or Bible scholars to show us where that said that in the Bible. I know. You know, it's interesting when people actually I don't know if they did this on purpose. They kind of, I don't know, tempered it a bit. But uh, around this time of year, people watch the movie Ten Commandments and uh, with Passover happening uh, and Easter and and Moses married a woman of a different race. But yeah, no, there was not a prohibition about it in the Bible. How interesting. It's sad that the Bible was often used to justify a lot of things. I mean, during slavery, I understand that there was a Bible that, of course, most slaves could not read and write. And uh, the white man edited a Bible called the Slave Bible that for those few that could read, that's what they could read. And it had taken out the part where Moses delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. And it had emphasized slaves be subject to your masters, which is in the New Testament. So, you know, people have a way of making it say what they want. It's so true, isn't it? It's so frustrating, especially when you want to be of the belief system that it really is the word of God. Yes. So, so, so going back to, I mean, I, I was unhappy at first, but I don't know if it was just me. I was only 18, 19 years old. I don't know if it was the Stockholm syndrome or what, but even though I never really accepted that teaching, I began to say, well, what they're saying about the Bible and everything is the right way. So I ended up staying there for six years. I got my bachelor's degree and my master's degree there. And by the time I was through there, I was thoroughgoing <laughs> one of their 
acolytes, you know, believed everything that they had taught. I uh, did get married. My wife followed me there. I say followed. She went to another college for one year, and then she came there because we wanted to be together. And um, interesting, my wife isn't uh, has always been a stabilizing factor for me. She's a much more pragmatic person than me. And so she never took as much of these teachings to heart as I did. You know, she, she was like, oh, okay, whatever. So later on, when I left all of this, I'm sure, and I know of women that who, if their husbands left it, they would have said, well, you've left the faith and I can't be your wife anymore. But she wasn't like that at all. So, you know, and by the time we finished, I had a, we had a baby and I took a job as a, a youth and music minister in Kansas of all places. And um, we went out there and had a, two more children while we were out there for three years. So I know nowadays we were only like 25 years old and we had three kids. And nowadays people think that was irresponsible. Like, well, yeah, but it was what people did at that time. <laughs> we didn't have any money. But during this time, I began to have a little problem with I now see was mental illness, severe anxiety and you know OCD. There was so much emphasis in fundamentalism about uh, you could really ruin things if you m- made some moral failure, you know, like if you got divorced or if you had an affair or, or somebody accused you of that. And so I think just the pressure of don't ever do anything that could be construed to be, you know, adultery or somebody, attempt, you know, don't be, put your way into temptation. I mean, I remember them teaching us when you go visiting for the church, if there's only a woman at home, don't go in the house, you know, because it could look like, you know, you're doing something nefarious. So anyway, I was there for a few years. And so we had talked about being foreign missionaries. This goes back to when I was in high school. So we said, well, let's do that. So it's kind of hard to explain, but we joined what was called a mission board, which meant that this agency approved us and they were affiliated with Bob Jones University. It's my own fault. I don't know why I didn't go somewhere else, but that's what I knew. And then we had to go around to churches and put on like a program at each church and ask them to financially support us. For two years before we went to Taiwan, which is where we finally went, we traveled to about 100 churches. And uh, my wife and I developed sort of a little dog and pony show where we sang together and I played the guitar and I played the trombone and she played the piano. So you thought the more we can entertain them, the more they'll support us right, financially. But during that time, I really, the, the anxiety began to just spiral out of control to the point that, you know, I mean, I didn't know anything about therapy or, I mean, first of all, therapy wasn't as known, as well known then as it is now. And of course, Bob Jones University and the, the groups I in would poo-poo anything that was psychology because it was humanistic and that kind of thing. But I was suffering so badly that I went to my family doctor and I, and I tried to explain some of the symptoms to him. He gave me a book. Or he told me about a book that I cite in my book. It was actually a Christian book, but it was called The Masks of Melancholy. It was written by a psychiatrist, and he was explaining the many ways that depression manifests itself. And so the doctor gave me some medication, and he said, I want you to take this, but I want you to talk to somebody. And I said, what do you mean talk to somebody? And so I began to go. He recommended this therapist, and the therapist's name was Bill. And I was very re- re- uh, leery, you know, like I said, he was going to like tell me about the pro- problem was my religion. So in one of the first sessions, I kept telling Bill, this is the devil attacking me. You know, he's trying to destroy my faith. He's trying to keep me from being a missionary. And Bill said something one day that in retrospect was pivotal. He said, for the time being, let's leave the devil out of it and let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can do by talking about it. And that. It was well said and it was so I began through Bill. And I read some, you know, he would recommend things for me to read. And about every three weeks, I would say, I'm not coming to see you anymore because you're turning me into some kind of liberal. But I would go back. And um, by then, you know, I was like in up in up to my ears of being this missionary. We had people supporting us financially. So we went to we went to Taiwan. Taiwan is an island off the coast of China. It's part of China. We ended up being there for seven years. And I found out that I was pretty good at learning to speak a Mandarin Chinese. And people said, wow, you know, you don't even have much of an accent. And it was thrilling. And I loved being there. I loved the people, the food, my kids, you know, all this. But I didn't really like the idea of trying to convert. I mean, Taiwan has been evangelized by Christian missionaries since the communists took over China in 1949. And still only about 3% of the population are Christian. You know, so it hasn't it hasn't really worked. <laughs> and so according to Christianity, all of these people were going to burn in hell forever. So I had basically decided 
I can't believe that. So I'll believe the rest of it, but not that. And uh, but it's kind of like you open Pandora's box. Once you say, well, maybe that's not true. You begin to think, well, maybe these other things aren't true as well. So I became more and more where I would try to read things that were more from what we call neo-Orthodox theologians, which are basically Christian theologians that that say, we don't have to believe it's literal that the earth was created in six days. And we don't have to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. We don't have to, but those are just metaphorical or allegorical or whatever. So I'll begin to read those kind of things thinking, well, I can, I can be a Christian if I can take this more liberal approach. But the problem was that I was representing an organization and churches who supported me who thought that I was a fundamentalist. And so that was really eating at me. And so make a long story short, we were there for two terms, about seven years. And I decided that well, since I'm reading all these books about how to help myself, and a lot of them were about counseling or well, about you know psychology, maybe I could be a therapist or I could be a Christian counselor. By the way, there was a book that I read at that time that you might remember, M. Scott Peck. He wrote The Road Less Travel. Well, he wrote another book that a lot of people think was his worst book, but I thought it was the best one. And it was called A Different Drum. And uh, in that book, he talked about how that people go through stages of the way they conceptualize faith. And he cited the work of James Fowler, who was a Harvard professor and later Emory University professor. And for the first time, a light came on that no wonder I'm changing and I can't believe these things anymore because this is normal. This is a stage. You know, you start out in a very black and white stage of faith. Right. And then you go through a stage where you accept whatever the authority figures say. But then you go through a stage where you you take in input from other places and you begin to question some of this. So suddenly I'm not a heretic. I'm not a um somebody that's like committed the unpardonable sin or whatever. This is normal. So anyway, we came back and I went to another place that a lot of people think is really conservative, but it wasn't as conservative as Bob Jones. And that was Liberty University. I took my family, my three little kids, and we went there because they had a master's degree in counseling. I was limited as to where I could go because Bob Jones University and it's rigid is, was not accredited. So most universities wouldn't accept me for further study. Liberty was similar enough that they would. But I, I never really got into life there. And while I was there, in order to support the family, I took a job as a pastor of a little country Baptist church. I went there on weekends and I had a part-time job and my wife worked at the university. But, but anyway, after a year, I finished the master's degree, but I needed a job. And I know when people hear my story, they're like, why didn't you just walk away from all of that? The problem was I had a family and this was the only profession I had was to be a pastor. <laughs> and I know some have been critical, like, well, you shouldn't have. You should have just. But I never got up and contradicted church beliefs from the pulpit. I just didn't emphasize them. So to make a long story short, since I speak Mandarin and spoke it well, there was a church in near Norfolk, Virginia, that was a Chinese church. They were immigrants. And they and I went to speak there a couple of times and they, they said, well, you would be the perfect pastor for us because you can speak Chinese and English. Well, we have all these kids that are second generation Chinese that they don't understand Chinese. So you can be our pastor. So I said I would do that for one year. And I ended up doing that for seven years. And then I ended up doing another similar church for three years. And all this time I wanted out, but I couldn't find a way to support my family if I just walked away. And I know that seems something like that would have been irresponsible. So I kept thinking, maybe there's a way for me to be a pastor, but I just don't have to be a fundamentalist pastor. And so I kept trying to get further away from that. And that church was Southern Baptist, but Southern Baptists have their problems, too. And they're kind of split between what they call the moderates and the fundamentalists. So I identified with the moderate group. But during this time, I would go to classes at the College of William and Mary because I dreamed that I wanted to go to a real college. I didn't want to go to one of these Christian colleges that I was embarrassed to tell people. Although I studied hard at both Bob Jones and Liberty. but So I went to the College of William and Mary, which was one hour away in Williamsburg, Virginia. And it took me 11 years, but I ended up earning a PhD at William and Mary, uh, one class at the time. <laughs> um, but I learned there, I studied developmental psychology I mean, it was a, a counselor education program, but there was a lot of emphasis on lifespan development and cognitive development and, you know, things like Erickson and Piaget and Maslow and so forth. And um, when I did my dissertation, they let me study faith development, which was James Fowler. And uh, it's similar to some of, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's analogous to some things like Piaget and Erickson and some of those things, but it has to do with how a person conceptualizes in 
life's meaning and faith and that kind of thing. So finally, about in 2004, about 18 years ago, I just resigned. And a couple of years was hard. I mean, I didn't have a job. I didn't have all my, um, hadn't jumped through enough hoops to be licensed as a therapist yet, as a counselor. So I had to do some more of the, you know, supervised counseling and do some things. And I even worked at Starbucks for a while. Thankfully, my wife had a good job and we got by. So that's where I've been since then. I would say that the book is about several things. It's not just about going to Bob Jones, though that is a part of it. And that defined a big part of my life. But it's about how at different stages of development, different aspects of meaning appeal to us. But we shouldn't just stay there. I mean, what happened to me, I think, was that, okay, I was 17 years old and I was somehow attracted to this religion that seemed to have all the answers. Right. But what should have happened was I should have gone to a secular college and I would examine those things and I would have come to my own view. But I signed up for this college that wanted to like say, no, this is what you're going to be from now on. Right. So interesting because, you know, you're still in a helping profession. You just switched over to doing it in a different way of people who, um, said to me that uh, they started becoming a therapist after they did something else. And I have a client who had been an insurance salesman and said, I'm still an insurance salesman, but just psychologically speaking, I mean, it's part of my nature. One of the things that I think is interesting when you were saying that you were still preaching, but not in the same way, that there were things that you were willing to say and things that you were not, things that you were willing to teach and things that you were not because of what your conscience was leading you towards. And I hear that a lot from people who are a bit on the outs of where they are. They don't know what they're going to do next. And they're really hoping, they're really hoping that the people listening to them are going to hear what they're saying and hear what they're not saying. And it's really interesting because sometimes it is noticed and you then give permission to the people hearing you who might also not believe in that, whatever that is or not feel like they need to, that it's okay. And you can give them permission to do so. But yeah, making a change is a very hard thing because I think something that I want to be able to talk to you more about that we were talking about, but not in a recorded way, but just about being shunned. If you leave the community, if you feel differently, if you do something else, if you have shifted your belief system so that it's not as kind of a letter of the law, then you're treated differently by the people who you had once really been a part of. And I'm wondering about that, about, first of all, what your fear of that was at the time, and also how people who have left are treated, especially those who might sound very reasonable and on point while they're talking about why they left? I think one of the hardest things for me was that knowing that some people would feel that I had betrayed their trust because they had supported us financially and that we were held up as the ideal. These are missionaries. They're they're out teaching what we believe. And I don't like for people to think I'm a bad guy. (laughs) I'm sensitive about that. And it was that. And the thing is, even, you know, um, with with when I wrote my book, even though I knew this was a foolish thought, I thought that maybe some people that are still in that would read it and say, oh, I see why Brian is like, uh, you know, what he, what he went through and why he decided to move on from that. But what I found is that most of the people who've appreciated it are sort of people that were on the sort of the fringes of my ministry. In other words, they weren't the church members that were heavily involved. They were like relatives of them or people who came to church once in a while. But the people who are very committed to it, the fact that I have moved on from that is sort of a threat to their what their life is all about. And um, their minister is like no longer a believer in this. And recently I contacted a college friend. He was my roommate one year at Bob Jones. And I didn't really want to say to him anything about religion, but he kept asking me and so forth. And finally, When I told him, he sent me a text to say, I don't want to have any relationship with you anymore. This is a teaching that certainly is in fundamentalist Christianity, and I suspect it's in other cults, and that is separate yourself from people that question your beliefs. The interesting thing about, I don't know if this is true in other cults, but Christians like to say they're so loving. If somebody has a problem, they rally around them. But if if it's clear you're not going to accept their teaching, they kind of drop you you know, like a hot potato, really. Right. You know, there are a lot of things that don't come together when you look at them in that way as an equation, like A plus B no longer equals C. And you're wondering what that's about, but there usually is a justification for that. And uh, it doesn't always fly with a lot of people, but it, it for some people, it satisfies them. But 
the idea of shunning, uh, many groups have it, and there are reasons given that somehow these people have something negative about them then and they might then have some influence on you you need to protect yourself from that from their negative influence or from it being satan there are some groups too that will say don't have contact with these people as a way to motivate them to come back because through right the silence the isolation the feeling alone they're going to want their community back that's kind of the way they sanctify the practice like oh well we do it out of love we want them to turn from the error of their ways Mm -hmm. Uh, but you said something so interesting that i'd love for you to repeat during this conversation which was about if someone i guess has an idea about why they left and it's not really well founded and doesn't really come together i guess it's easier to say okay well that's just your opinion but if someone says something and it seems very reasonable and then you need to assume that that's the devil, that somehow you really, really shouldn't listen. What is that about? There's a quote from the New Testament that says, beware of certain individuals because even Satan has appeared as an angel of light, meaning that sometimes these questions about the faith or these contradictions will appear very convincing and you need to be really careful about that. If there's a God, he gave us a brain and ability to reason, but it's like, nah, don't depend on your own reason, you know, just listen to the authorities. I think that's the difference, you know, that when I went to that therapist, and even though it was many years before I finally got out, but when I got to that, went to that therapist and he said, let's leave the devil out of it and let's see what we can do by talking about it. That changed everything for me because no longer was everything solved by prayer or the Bible. It was solved by like trying to understand myself. Right. When you were talking about having symptoms of OCD, of anxiety, of depression. Are those things that have stayed with you throughout this time, or do you find that those have changed as your feelings about things have changed? When you ask a good question, so uh, the chicken or the egg, I mean, was the anxiety caused by the religion or what? I mean, they've, I've still continued to struggle with them, but I've continued to go to therapy and, and I do take medication and that's something that's well managed now. There were some writers that used to say that anxiety is a a teacher. You know, it always asks you to like check what's going on. Why are you anxious? Right. And even though, yes, I have a tendency to be anxious and my father had anxiety and, you know, my anxiety has been over the top, but nonetheless, why? And other people seem to be glib about these things that really bothered me about the Christian faith. You know, well, they preach sermons about the fires of hell and yeah, that was a good sermon, you know, like, And that would just bother me. Like, I mean, how could you be so glib about that? You know, I've suffered my share with anxiety, but it was also without that, maybe I wouldn't have said this is not for me. I mean, it's hard to explain. I can't totally explain it because some people's anxiety is so debilitating, but it has some something to be learned from it. What is it that does seem to fuel this to some degree? Right. I think also there are some people I've talked to just because of the nature of the work that I do who have left kind of orthodoxy in any religion. And what they have found is that they feel that they're able to affect a change in real time in a way that was imagined before, that they didn't know if what they were providing for people or teaching people or giving people was actually going to do the trick, was going to keep them safe. They didn't see it. They didn't know. But then in their work after leaving, uh, whether it was through volunteer work or the work that their chosen profession, they could see in a very tangible way the impact that they were able to have. And it felt a lot more satisfying and real to them. I mean, pastors do some sort of counseling, but the problem is I found that I like about what I do now is that people come in and then we can say together, okay, what can we do together to help you? What can, how can you think differently? How can you act differently? When I was a minister, people always wanted me to like ask God to intervene and to take away their problems. Right? In fact, if I didn't say, let's pray and ask God to fix this, it was like, well, I went to the minister and he didn't even talk about God helping me, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly right. I want to hear also more about your book and and what it, what it's been like to have it out there in the public and what responses you've gotten from people. I mean, it's got a lot of, I think, interesting stories from my childhood, as well as adventures when we lived in another country. People that don't really care about the religious parts thought it was interesting and entertaining. But yes, it's been somewhat hard because most of the people who've been positive either are not particularly religious or they're certainly not in that kind of religion. Or as I said, they might have been on the fringes of it. But 
even family, I mean, people are very angry with me, even before they've read it. They, the title says, The Long Surrender, a memoir about losing my religion. The publisher liked that phrase, losing my religion, because it was from that REM song. You remember that? Interesting, in the South, we have an expression about, you made me lose my religion. This means you pissed me off, you know, that type of thing. You know, as I've mentioned it on social media and all, some people that I don't even know will say things like, well, I need to know if you are a Christian now before I read it, because I'm not interested in reading anything about someone that's not a Christian. There's that. Uh, there's people who read it more thoughtfully, but still like, well, I still believe, you know, in the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And I knew that it wasn't going to give me all the strokes of, oh, we, well, now we realize you were a great guy all along. I knew that wouldn't be it. But I think part of me like wanted that. Who wouldn't? But I don't try to like reach out to my former friends from college or anything because this is a threat to the very foundations of their life and they feel they have to push back. Right. I understand. They probably do feel like they have to push back. So I'm sure it was really hard to, I mean, hard is, is a, I'm sure, a huge understatement for what it was like for you to fall away from certain parts of, not religion, but certain parts of it that didn't align with you anymore and what that would mean and how people would view you. So I'm sure there was there were moments of pain there. I don't know how it is in like in other parts of the country, you know, that are, you know, I come from what's called the Bible Belt. But where I grew up is good people go to church. Good people are church people. And when I was in high school, even though there was a lot of stuff going on, you know, it was the 70s and there was smoking pot and all the sex and drugs, everything. But people admired me because I was this student preacher sort of guy. Right? I was doing what they should do, but they don't, right? And it's interesting as I've encountered some of those high school people through social media or whatever, uh, some of them, I think, went out and sowed their wild oats. And now in the last quarter of their life, they've gotten real religious. And now they're admonishing me because I uh, have left that. But I don't like to be thought of a not good guy but I think in certain parts of the country that if you've left religion, you can't be a good person now. They don't know about good people that aren't religious people. They don't, they don't know about that. And it's interesting because I can remember people talking about how atheists are such horrible people. But what I found is atheists are really pretty nice. They want to make the world a better place, you know, instead of like counting on getting to heaven. They're like, well, let's see what we can do now. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a phrase in, in Hebrew that I was raised with called tikkun olam, which is repair of the world. And I think that's why there's so many uh, Jewish activists and environmentalists and people marching with Martin Luther King. You know, just that's what I was raised with, because we got to do something now. This is the, our one chance and let's do it. But that's not going to speak to everyone. That's going to feel really stressful for a lot of people. But yeah, I think it is true. I've been talked to by people who will say I left being a believer for one reason or another, or my family endured the Holocaust. I just, it's been too hard for me to come back to belief in God. And I've been asked, well, how do you know the difference between right and, right and wrong? How come you're not just out killing people? And it's like, why, why would I do that? I don't understand the question. <laughs> like, of course I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I think that is true that there is this guideline that, that you need this in order to, in order to be right, in order to do the right thing. Yeah. And even some now in the I think in the the moral, what do you call it? The morality wars we're seeing now is that some people have now embraced religion just because they think it upholds their views of how society should be. A lot of like liberal Christians or, or people like me that are more humanists are concerned about this term of Christian nationalism. It's the idea that we're going to Christianize this country. We're going to make laws that support the teachings of the King Commandments, but also, you know, of course, they are usually against abortion and they're against homosexuality. And they think they're going to let this be a kind of like a theocracy that's run, you know, under God's laws. But of course, we know historically that terrible things have happened when <laughs> governments have taken up religion is the rationale for their, um, you know, for what they do and conquering other countries. In fact, some people uh, there's a guy named Jim Palmer that used to be a pastor or something. He writes a lot of, to some people, very shocking things about Christianity. But he said that he say, he'll say things like, Jesus probably wouldn't have been a Christian. <laughs> uh, he'll say that when Constantine, who was the emperor of Rome in like 300, BC, 300 AD or CE, we call it now, when he became a Christian and decided it would be the official religion of Rome, that's when it became something ugly. You know, now you could take it and hold up a cross and go conquer other people's. Right. 
like you're saying, people will see what they want to see. They'll they'll say that this is what, you know, God said. And there are a lot of pastors, preachers, uh, rabbis, others who are more fundamentalist in their way, who will say that they speak for God, that they that they kind of channel these ascended masters and God him or herself. And then it's hard to argue. I mean, where where are you left with? You, know, you can't really argue. Sometimes you just have to move away from that person in order to think in other ways. Yeah. My oldest son has a habit of saying religion is like a virus. You know, it's it's hard to get rid of. I mean, for a long time, I thought when I was still a minister, well, I can just talk about the good parts. I can talk about how God loves you and how, you know, all of the difficult times in your life, God can make them into something good, you know, all those kind of things. And it's true that I didn't preach about hell and all that. But on the other hand, I can't totally absolve myself from responsibility. Right. So you've had to find this space in between of believing, I think, and holding on to what matters to you and what feels right and what is what is of high level in terms of intellect, education, moral goals of how to live your life and also, you know, be able to dismiss the rest that you feel just are not in line with who you are. And I'm sure as a father and a grandfather, you've needed to find ways to teach and deal with the changing views, you know, throughout time. And so I wonder what you feel that you've landed on in terms of how you explain it to the people you love, because you've probably had to find way, you know, what happens when you have kids and grandkids, they ask you these questions like, so what do you believe? And you're thinking, oh, no, I have to actually come up with a sentence right now. <laughs> as far as my kids, I mean, I'm really glad that I kind of started this process of deconstruction, but I, ne- I I did it before it was a word. I never heard of that until maybe within the last year, <laughs> but I guess that's what I was doing. But um, I kind of did that soon enough to where it was kind of before my kids got too too much into adolescence and None of them have followed in that fundamentalist path. And my daughter is actually a lesbian. And I'm so glad that, and she's married to a woman. I'm so glad that I got all that behind me before she came out with that. And so my wife and I can be completely supportive. And I hope I would have anyway, but, you know, I would have felt more the need to say, well, I wish you wouldn't do that or something, you know, probably if I were still a pastor. I don't have a problem saying that I'm a, a follower of the teachings of Jesus, because I feel like it when I was in high school, I mean, I, I was raised with a lot of racism. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I've heard words said that I wish I could unhear. I grew up in the very, very deepest South. But when high school, when I started reading that Jesus said that everybody, you know, God loved everybody, I said, OK, I accepted that. And that's why I don't understand why some people who are admonishing me about what it is to be a Christian seem to have racist attitudes. I don't understand where you're coming from. The teachings of Jesus did transform my thinking. And I have a very strong sense of fairness. I mean, I think I do. And compassion that some people would call you probably sound like a snowflake or one of those words like that. But um, I attribute that to listening to the very plain words of Jesus. But I don't have to be a Christian. I don't think I don't think Jesus was. (laughs) That came later. But the people that are still very much committed to it, they give me the pet arguments that I used to give, you know. And so it's like, I don't know what to say. But it's interesting. In my practice, I've rarely told people that I used to be a minister because I don't really want them to like tailor what they say to me. Like, oh, you know, like they say a curse word and then, oh, I'm sorry. That's right. You were a minister. Like, like my ears can't tolerate it or something. That are also religion. Religion is divisive. It is. I mean, if I tell somebody I was a minister, first thing I want to know is what church was it? Because people want to, they want to categorize you, right? What kind were you? What they think of that is based on their own experience, right? So I don't usually mention that. I have on occasion if I thought it would be helpful. On some occasions when people are telling their story that's so similar, I feel like if I don't tell them, it'll be like I'm some sort of a voyeur or something like (laughs) that. Okay, let me tell you something. Okay, I'll spill. (laughs) One thing that rigid religion does is cuts you off from people. Right. They don't trust people outside the fold. And I love people. And I've and the one thing that I've continued to do is play the trombone. I play in several musical groups. And I like I was even in the, the Washington Redskins marching band for a couple of years. But I like to be around all kinds of people. And that's continued to getting away from this rigid belief system has enabled me to do that. I just didn't like the insular nature of it. 
Right. I'm so glad that you've been able to also play your instrument, get involved in music and and get back into that. And it is a really beautiful thing to be able to be fully present for your child and to be there for your child in all that your child is. And to know that having left a certain way of thinking that was rigid and that was exclusionary, you were able to be a father, the father that she needed and needs. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, yeah, she got married two and a half years ago now, but our whole family, I'm, I'm so proud of my, my, I have two, a daughter and two sons and we were all just hundred percent there. We all were part of the wedding, helped organize it, be there. And I mean, it's interesting with when it comes to homosexuality, even though most of my associates would have said that was wrong, I don't think I ever said anything about it. And it never really made sense to me because it seemed to me that this was not a choice that people made. So why would it be something they should be condemned for? I don't want to give myself too much credit, but but I'm just so glad now I don't have to make any excuse for it. I don't have to because there's some people and, and they do now. If I say my daughter's wife, they're like, huh? you know, I can tell they're surprised at that. But I'm so glad that, yeah, and she, and my daughter is, is, I mean, all of my kids are wonderful. She's about the sweetest person on the planet. You know, what's true is that when you say the phrase, my daughter's wife, what happens is, yeah, some people still find it different to hear. They're still adjusting to just the sound of that, but in you, you not having a reaction to it, how it was as though you said my son's wife or my daughter's husband, that it's a non-issue. You did a lot of teaching in that moment to whoever was listening. It does. And it gives hope to people because I'll have people that were surprised that I didn't, I said that without a beat, you know, without missing a beat, they'll say, Oh, um, well, that 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 happened to my cousin. Can I talk to you about that? Because our family wouldn't go to the wedding and all that. Right. And I hope, you know, that as things continue and the world opens up a bit more here and there, you know, some more in some parts of the world than in others, unfortunately, I think being able to really uh, be there with a whole heart is for a lot of people, what religion is about that I really want to feel for people and I want to help people and I want to be there. But when your religion is telling you, well, not so fast, only with some people, then you got to, I think, take a moment, take a pause and wonder about that and what kind of person that might turn you into and what decisions you're going to have to make in your own life about the people around you who you love. And if you can show them that, or if you're not allowed. So I'm, I'm really happy you're get, you get to be your full self now, which is lovely. Anything you want to mention before we finish up? The one thing that I thought I would mention was that it's sort of an, it's a paradox, but even though I sort of regret that I got involved at this at an early age and all those years I was a minister and a missionary, on the other hand, particularly when I was a pastor, I thought in some sense this was my calling to take care of people. You know, I've presided over dozens and dozens of funerals and people that children died and, of course, weddings and, and, I admire ministers and rabbis and priests in, in many ways because they are the first line of care for people many times. And many of them are very open-minded. And, and, you know, so part of me is like, why couldn't I just hang in there, you know, and just be a, you know, I, I just, you know, because when I did leave, some people thought I had kind of betrayed them. Like, oh, I thought you had more love than that. Oh, my. Wow. Oh, that's such a shame because it's not about that at all. I just feel like religion is an area where people aren't often honest. There was a, an author that I quoted in my dissertation, actually, Gordon Allport. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He was a professor at Harvard way, way back. But he said religion, and he, he talked about stages of development and that might apply to religion. And he said, religion is an area where people are apt to stay in a very infantile stage throughout their whole life. You know, they may become a rocket scientist, but they're not going to mess with what grandma said about God. And so consequently, people aren't honest. They they just go along. And then when somebody is, people are like, oh, how could you say that? Oh, interesting. Right. And I guess that's when you see a lot of people being highly reactive to being questioned. And I had the experience growing up, it, kind of conservadox, learning a lot of prayers, learning them in Hebrew. 
And uh, as an adult, I remember being in a service that was more liberal than what I was raised with and saying a prayer that I think was in Aramaic, which is no longer in use, but it's ancient. And some of the older prayers are in Aramaic. And I'm just singing the prayer. And the person I'm with turns to me and says, I'm surprised you would say those words. And I thought to myself, I have no idea what I just said. <laughs> I know some of the words, but I don't know the whole context of it. And it's a language that's not spoken anymore. And uh, what what did I say? And she said, you just said something about thanking God that you're not a some something, you know, like, oh, I, oh, sorry. And I remember I looked up or wherever I said, whoops, sorry, I'm going to take that. Can I take that back? <laughs> What's sad is that, I mean, one woman even told me that she was, she liked my book. She was a high school classmate. I didn't know her well, but she said, but my son's an evangelical pastor. And she says, but when I was in college, I babysitted for the rabbi's children and they were like family to me. And so she's torn between like her religion telling her that these people are not saved. See, you've got to go with, with what's in your heart. To go with what's in your heart, you should always have the freedom, I think, to follow what's in your heart. I mean, that that's a very important guidepost. And if the relationship you're in if the person's telling you don't, you can't have a relationship with your family anymore, but that goes against your heart. If a religion is telling you, look at certain people as somehow better than other people, that goes against your heart. Follow your heart. Yeah. Unfortunately, some religions will tell you that your heart is not reliable, but what can we follow then? You know, even those people wouldn't admit it, but they, if you ask them, why do you believe the, the Bible so strongly? Well, because it changed me and so forth. So at the end of the day, it's because you have some something inside of you that tells you it's true. Mm -hmm. Oh, let's end with that because we could talk about that for hours. So hopefully we'll be able to talk again. And I really valued this time and who you are and what you're doing and how thoughtful you are, not just sensitive, but how thoughtful you are, how you really think things through and make life changes based on your thoughts, based on your realizations. Thank you for what you do, because it's it's a tough thing. I mean, you're dealing with people that have been in things that have changed their life, not always for the better, and they're trying to somehow dig their way out. You really should look at that book by Marlene Winnell, because she talks about just because you decided to leave something doesn't mean that you won't ex continue to experience trauma, because the trauma is not just what happened to you while you're in there. It's the way you feel now because of the people who are still there or the guilt or the fear that you experience. Right. And the name of that book again is what? Leaving the Fold. And it's um, Marlene Winnell. Great. Thank you for that. Thanks for that resource. Well, be well. Thank you for your good work. Of course. Take care. Bye-bye now. One more thing before you go. Something that Brian talked about was so powerful. I mean, many things that he talked about were powerful. But one of the things that he mentioned was about going to Taiwan to evangelize with his wife and kids. There are evangelists all over the world. There are evangelists in my neighborhood who come to my house often. And if you haven't heard me talk about this before, on my door, I have a mezuzah, which is a Jewish symbol, and it has a prayer in it. And for people who believe in the power of the prayer, it is to protect your home. I see it more as a symbol that unites me with the people within my community rather than it having any kind of power. But still, I like having it. And I know that for the people who do believe that the prayer inside holds some power, when they walk into my home, they kiss it or they put their finger on it and then put their finger to their lips. And as they leave, they also do the same. What is important to note is that because of that, I have become a beacon in my neighborhood for people trying to, quote unquote, save me and convert me. And unfortunately, this often happens on holy days, on days where I am celebrating a Jewish ceremony, a holiday. 
Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, a day of atonement, and suddenly the doorbell rings and someone's trying to convert me. I get left uh, videos and books, people coming one by one or two by two, a pretty fairly consistent stream. And during COVID, when people were not coming to your door, I got text messages on my cell phone, a cell phone number I did not actually give out to anyone, but somehow they got, letting me know what Bible passage I should read to be saved, and then contacting me a week later to make sure I had done my reading. Gets to be difficult. But I know, especially from talking to people like Brian, that it is done with pure intention. It's done to save. You feel, because I've talked to a number of people who did this as part of their training growing up, that it is your responsibility to save these people. And if you don't save them, that's on you. And you have to carry that burden. At the same time, we've seen time and time again where people have gone to the point of killing people who did not convert. I think about the Spanish Inquisition. I think about people throughout history who were killed, who did not convert, who were expelled from countries for not converting. I think about a couple I once had at my house who I had met through their child, who their child was friends with one of my kids. I invited them to a Hanukkah party at my house And they were both teachers and they were part of a fundamentalist branch of Christianity. And they had met by doing evangelism in Papua New Guinea. And when we were going around introducing ourselves, which I sometimes do when I have new people at my home, and they said that they were evangelists, and my family is filled with people who have had to deal with having a history of people trying to evangelize us, and also people who care about indigenous peoples and respecting their traditions of long last. There was a silence that came over the room when they said how they met and that they met trying to convert the quote-unquote natives in New Guinea. It was very hard to come back from that moment and to say, um, latkes anyone? Because there was this tension in the room. Not so much that we thought they were bad people, but there was a, how is that okay? That you can go to someone else's land and tell them that you know better and you know what they need. And you know that what they need is something that you have that they don't. What is important to remember when you're doing that is the message that you're giving people about who they are and how much you respect who they are already. When I talk about how to approach people, when you feel like there's something they might need, I often will say, why don't you ask? Why don't you ask if they're looking for something? Why don't you ask first if they feel that they're missing some fundamental piece, and then be prepared to offer them choices. I feel that that's the most respectful way of doing it. That if it's not something religious that you're looking for, but something else, maybe be prepared to offer people other choices rather than, I have the answer for you. I know what you need. But there's also, I think, a lot of hubris in deciding that you know that someone needs to be saved. I have been told many times, as a Jew, you need to be saved. You are not saved. You're not going to be going to heaven, even though there really isn't that belief system within Judaism. And I think it would be wonderful if we lived in a world where people instead could find what works for them. And if they think it's been helpful to them, they can offer it to other people, but not presuppose that it's needed, that the other person needs something. It's like when we call certain civilizations uncivilized. But sometimes when we find out about that civilization and how they work together and how they might not have the concept of war and how they barter and how they might not have money and how they have lived peacefully for many, many years or 
that they actually might have a more egalitarian community, that women might be given more of a role of leadership than in quote-unquote civilized nations. We are very quick to decide that other people are less than and need what we can offer them. So again, if you are approaching people religiously, same thing if you're approaching them psychologically, it's a very important thing to not come across like you know better right away. It's very important, I think, to walk through the world assuming other people have what they want and have what they need and are just fine. But if you're not sure, be sure to ask. Don't assume. Don't push. Don't threaten. Don't berate. And don't come back after someone has said, I'm good. I'm fine. You can move on to the next house, to the next community, to the next country if you need to. There are a lot of people also who have left being evangelists who have said that it's been hard for them to not look at people as less than. And they've had to work on seeing eye to eye with those around them. But it's a much more relaxed stance and it's a much more approachable stance when you re-enter the world in that way. When you say, I am like you and I might have information that I think might be helpful to you, I'm happy to share it with you if you want it. The same thing goes for parents and children. I might have advice for you, life advice. Ask me if you feel like you need it. Ask me if you feel like you want it. That way, you also have a buy-in. You know that the person is interested in hearing it and that you're not sort of chasing them down the street to tell them what you know and to tell them what you need. It's a very different way of approaching the conversation. I am really glad that Brian is now able to pursue his dreams. I'm very glad that he's able to play music. He's able to look at his life and also not be so distraught by the idea that everyone who was not quote-unquote saved was going to be going to hell. It's just not the case that there are just a few people in this world who are saved or who are destined for saving. I hear that time and time again with so many different groups in so many different ways. And for those out there who are still needing to feel like it is on your shoulders to save the rest of the world. It could be that the rest of the world doesn't need saving in that way, but they probably need listening too. So instead of deciding what people need, be sure to ask and then be prepared for the answer because it could be that they say to, let's say, someone on the street, if you're asking them, that they don't need Jesus, and they don't need God, and they don't need Buddha, and they don't need something spiritual per se. They might need a hug. They might need a hand. They might need food. They might need hope. They might need a job. But you won't know until you ask. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrination podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website, at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.